0: Brothers and sisters in Christ, let us now prepare our hearts to listen from preaching of God's word. Let us commit this time to God in prayer. Let's pray. Sovereign Father, we want to commit this time to you that even as we read from your word, as we hear it being preached and expounded, we ask for God that uh, you would cause us to see the treasure of your word. To see the life that comes from it, as your Holy Spirit inspires your Word being preached into our lives, we ask, O God, that even in the way of Christ, you not only remind us, but you enable us, O God, to be joyfully obedient. That we dare not shirk our path; we dare not go off track based on our own preferences. Help us to learn to yield to you, especially in this time of Lent. So speak, O God, for your Word. Is ready for us. Speak, of oh God, for your children are ready to listen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now this morning, I will be preaching from the Gospel according to Mark. Uh, specifically, the Gospel according to Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to the end, which is verse 38. So if you have your Bibles with you, kindly turn with me together to Mark chapter 8 reading from verse 31, Um, and as usual, I will be reading from the English Standard Version, the ESV, verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again, and he said this plainly. And of my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, in this season of Lent, as we continue on this sermon series taking place within this season, we want to reflect particularly on this passage when Jesus teaches his disciples about the mission of the Christ we know that before Mark chapter 8:31 specifically the passage before it in verse 27 to 30 as Jesus was gaining so much popularity as people who witnessed his ministry began to ask who is this man it was revealed finally to Peter that Jesus is not just a rabbi, a teacher whom he had been following, not just a prophet, even though he was so scarce in those days, but Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited, anointed one of the Lord for the nation of Israel and for the world. And it is at this point in time having finally revealed his identity. Well, in this sense, he affirmed Peter's answer, Jesus immediately proceeds to unpack what that would entail for his life, for his mission, for the ministry leading up to the cross, and of course, culminating in that glorious resurrection three days later. We know that in the Gospel of Mark, before this passage, people had been asking about Jesus' identity, The demons, when they were exorcised, would scream at the top of their lungs, you are the Son of God. And Jesus would shut them up. And when Jesus healed people, He would caution them strictly. He said, don't tell anyone about this. Instead, go, for example, in chapter 1, go to the temple, show that you've been healed by me. yeah. But don't publicise it. Why? Well, we will see that this makes a lot of sense in light of the mission of the Christ. We will come to it and I will explain it a little bit more as we unpack further. Well, in verse 31, therefore, at this point in time, Jesus began to teach his disciples, those he had called, that to teach them that this Son of Man, a term he had been using for himself, which was uh, actually rather generic and even enigmatic to this point. Whenever he talked about himself, about the Son of Man, it may not have immediately Uh, been significant to his immediate hearers. But now, for the disciples at least, knowing that the Son of Man was a title that was tied into the office of the Christ, Jesus was now going to tell them the primary mission, the primary direction for this Christ. And if we know this passage well enough and if we have just read, we will see that it could not be any more different And what the disciples were expecting, having just come to this great revelation of the identity of Jesus, the Son of Man, their dear rabbi. Well, he tells them very quickly in verse 31, he says that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Now, we're going to unpack this very quickly first. We see that when Jesus teaches the disciples about the identity of the Christ, yeah, about himself, Jesus, the Son of Man, who is the Christ, he says, firstly, the outcome of this ministry is that he must suffer many things. And now this would immediately shock the immediate hearers, i.e. the disciples, because they're thinking, hey, that's not what I was brought up to believe about, about the Messiah, about the Christ they would have been brought up to understand that when the Christ came, finally, the kingdom of God through Israel would be restored, that Davidic kingdom from King David, the lineage of King David, whereby these people were now living under the power of the Roman Empire. Finally, with the advent of the Messiah, long awaited for centuries, this Messiah will be an all-conquering, triumphant Messiah. So why is it that you would start, Jesus, in their minds, they would probably be thinking this. Why would you start by telling us, having revealed that uh, that you are indeed that Christ through Peter, affirming Peter's confession, that what you start with immediately is that it is characterized by suffering. Worse still, we see that it's unpacked further. How is he suffering? How does he suffer in many things? Well, we see at least one specific aspect is that he will be rejected, Rejected by whom? By the elders, the chief priests, the scribes. Now again, for us, perhaps if you've grown up in church, if you've been reading about the Pharisees, you know they're like the typical antagonists uh, in, in all the Gospels. They're always the number one bad guy. And so you have no qualms whatsoever attributing such malicious plans uh, to, to rid, get rid of Jesus to this group of people. In fact, we read earlier in, in Mark, that uh, these people, these Pharisees, these leaders of the Sanhedrin council from Jerusalem had sent uh, spies or even other teachers to have a listen at this Jesus, see what he's doing. And the conclusion finally is that they said we need to be rid of him. So from the literary context, you may say, yeah, okay, this is to be expected. They are the antagonists. They are the ones that go against God. There is a sense of irony that those who are God's spiritual shepherds for the nation of Israel, however, those who lead them astray, that is the irony. And yet, if you consider for a moment, put yourself in the shoes of a common Jew in Jesus' day, that would be a very different sentiment for them because these elders, chief priests, scribes were much loved, respected. They were seen as those who would guard the sanctity of the Jewish faith whilst anticipating the coming Messiah. But here, Jesus, who has affirmed this identity as the long-awaited Christ, he says that the trajectory, the experience of the Messiah, the Christ, is not only characterized by suffering, it will culminate in a specific rejection of the under-shepherds of Israel. That is a very provocative and troubling claim. When we talk about the word rejected, we're not just saying therefore that oh, we, we don't, uh, don't accreditate him, and we do not commend him. He's someone who is not worth uh, listening to. No, we have come to understand whether prior to this chapter in the Gospel of Mark or even at the end of this book or even in the rest of the Gospels, but this word rejection means something more. It would be a rejection by trial which would lead to a sentencing not only of heresy, but therefore of death. And we know how that plays out, isn't it? When Jesus is tried uh, by by the high priest, by the Sanhedrin, he's then dragged off to Pilate. Pilate doesn't want to sentence him to death, but in the end, he's pressured into doing so. So this word rejected is very loaded because it's not just a spur of the moment, uh, not just a lack of commendation, but that of a carefully strategized initiative to get rid of Jesus. And it is done by those who were supposed to know God the most, were supposed to lead God's people back to the way of the law of love. Jesus tells his probably shocked disciples, still processing the fact that their rabbi is actually the Christ, he tells them that this is going to be his experience. Not only a suffering Messiah instead of a triumphant one, A rejected Messiah. And worse still, rejected not by those who are outside, those who don't know the law, those who are not Jews. Rejected by his own people. Represented by the leaders of God's people. And worse still, the outcome is that of death. How can the long-awaited Messiah meet that end? At this point in time, if you were Peter, you would probably be overwhelmed. Not only puzzled, disturbed, but overwhelmed. I just found out that Jesus is the Christ. But you're telling me this is the end? Even though Jesus doesn't end there, isn't it? He says, after three days rise again. But for Peter, there was no such precedent. He probably had never seen anyone rise from the dead, let alone a performance of, of miracles at the feet of such magnitude which Jesus had been doing. So it may have just gone over his head. Because what caught Peter's tension was the fact that this Christ is going to be killed, isn't it? We see that reaction in verse uh, 32. But in any case, before we go to Peter's reaction, we see that Jesus states all these things very plainly in verse 32. He said, and he said this plainly. It means, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, unlike the way he had been teaching through parables concerning the kingdom of God. Now this is about the plan of God through his Messiah, the Christ, Jesus son of man. And he stated this in no uncertain terms. This is the trajectory. This is the direction. This is the outcome. It will lead to suffering, rejection, death, but glorification, rising from the dead. And he said this plainly. That is as clear as it could be. Succinct, summarized, concise. But what about Peter's reaction? We see in verse 32b, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, it's very interesting that Peter does two things here. Firstly, when he says Peter, when it says Peter took him aside, he actually means quite literally to bring Jesus physically to himself. So some scholars have reflected, is it a symbolic gesture of protection? Or was it he, because that he wanted to make a point to Jesus that I want to say this to your face? That's open to, to a bit of discussion. But the point of Peter bringing Jesus to himself is actually highlighted in the very next part of the sentence. Peter took him aside or brought him to himself and began to rebuke him. Wow. Think about it. Think about it for a moment. Peter, who had just affirmed the status of Jesus as the long-awaited Christ, the anointed of God, And by this time, he would have also put this title together with what Jesus had been doing in that this was not the work of a a mortal man. This was the work of a divine being in the flesh. But Peter rebuked Jesus. Well, it says here, to be more precise, he began began to rebuke him. So this is in stark contrast, the complete opposite of verse 31, when Jesus began to teach the disciples about the purpose and mission and direction of the Christ. So it is a direct opposition. Immediately he goes against and he assumes the position almost of the teacher. And he began to rebuke Jesus. So that, that is also startling, if you can actually picture that. He tries to usurp Jesus. Not unlike a certain character that, uh, if you've been following this online sermon series last week, we talked about the devil, isn't it? The tempting of Jesus in the wilderness. At the end of all those temptations, the devil wants to usurp the Son of God. Here, troubling as it is right now, Peter began to rebuke the Christ, Jesus, the Son of Man. Now, the word rebuke is very important, yeah, because in the context of the Gospels, we find that this word is used many times in the experience of going against spiritual forces, evil spiritual forces. So when we use the word rebuke, when Jesus rebukes the demons, when he rebukes uh, demonic-inspired sicknesses, you see that word is being used. And Peter's actually doing that to Jesus. How dare he? If the character of the devil back in the temptation account last week was characterized by malicious intent, this one by Peter is characterized by insolence, by outright rebellion too. And we see Jesus' reaction. Verse 33, but turning... And seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What was Jesus doing in reaction to what Peter had just done? Uh, the insolence of his disciple? who, despite giving the right answer, is ignorant and arrogant about the implications of God's plan for his Christ. Jesus turns and sees the disciples who had heard this rebuke from Peter, recognizing that this needs to be set straight. It cannot be allowed to continue. If you remember the theme of the identity of Jesus so far leading into the chapter 8 of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus did not want other people to define the identity of Jesus, the Son of God, or Jesus, the Messiah. And that's why he uses the word Son of Man. But now, as Jesus does confirm, affirm his identity as the Christ, he needs to give them the right understanding that it leads to the cross. But now Peter says, no. And Peter takes on a satanic alignment. And that's why Jesus looks at the disciples and he rebuked Peter. So again, the significance of that word. It's not just to correct someone. It's not just to tell them to know their place. But it is therefore speaking against a spiritual maliciousness, a demonic inspiration. Now this is quite unparalleled, isn't it? Jesus speaks to Peter, "Get behind me, Satan." He's not saying that Peter is demon possessed and therefore he's speaking to Satan himself. He's obviously also not saying that Peter is the personification of Satan, which of course, if you know the word Satan, it is uh, defined as that word adversary. It's not. It's not actually a. A, a, a name, it is actually a description, a title, the adversary, the one who wants to go against somebody else, and an usurper. Rather, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, in the same way, again, previously, yeah, we talked about last week's sermon again. When the devil tells Jesus to bow down and worship, Jesus says the same thing, get out of my sight. Do not stand in the way. And Jesus is basically saying to Peter, you are aligning yourself with that of Satan. That's why he goes on to explain after saying, get behind me, Satan. He says, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And by implication, this actually means two things. Firstly, Peter was therefore in stark opposition. He was in stark contrast to the will of God. He was going against the plan of God, despite recognizing Jesus as the Christ of God. But secondly, Jesus was telling him, when you do this, you are aligning yourself with the devil. You, in representation of sinful humanity, are showing that you are in cahoots with Satan himself in going against God's plan for the Christ. This is very significant, brothers and sisters in Christ. If last week we reflected on how the devil had that audacity to provoke and impose and command Jesus, we see that in reality that sinful humanity also doesn't know their place. Peter, though his disciple, did not understand what it meant to follow his teacher, who is now the Christ of God. Peter not only commanded the devil, not only commanded Jesus like the devil tried to do last week, but Peter rebuked Jesus. Even the devil didn't do that, but Peter did that. And that's why Jesus nips it in the bud and says, get behind me, Satan. Do not align yourself with him. Now, this actually set the tone for the much-known and familiar call of Christ to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. It is actually within the context of such an intense and conflicted situation because here, the disciples of Jesus Christ, having known that Jesus is the Christ, are now at the risk of misunderstanding and we're still perverting the expectations of what Jesus is supposed to come and do. And that's why we see in verse 34, Jesus expands this summons to teach them something very important when it comes to following him. So not only is it about Peter anymore, not only about the immediate disciples, but he calls the crowd in verse 34 it says and calling the crowd to him with his disciples he said to them if anyone would come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me this was actually a summons it is almost if i can put it this way in a very intense manner it is like an ultimatum let's not forget yeah by this time jesus was popular But Jesus is not interested in the clamour and attention of the crowd. He wants disciples who do not get in the way of the cross. And those who he had called, and significantly Peter, who is eventually going to be called the rock, isn't it? He is getting in the way of the cross. And so Jesus issues this challenge or this ultimatum for discipleship. You want to come after me? You've heard so many things, you've seen what I've done. Well, if you truly want to be followers of Christ, he says, deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. When we talk about denying oneself, for them, and even for us today, it's the same implication in that you do not indulge in your personal aspirations or expectations or impositions for what you think to be the right way, for what you think to be acceptable even concerning what God should do. That was Peter's exact issue right now. Because for him, the Christ could not be subject to suffering, rejection, even death. Like I said, the resurrection promise of Christ didn't seem to really resonate with him at all. He was more overwhelmed by this because it went against his expectation. It went against his preference. It went against his way of life, perhaps. Not just as an individual, but for the nation. And for us as a church today, we do well to be reminded of this, when, that when Jesus says, when you want to follow me, deny yourself. What that means is that you don't get to impose on Jesus. You don't get to rebuke God and tell God, this is what is entitled to me as a follower of Christ based on your preferences but you have to be subject only to the plan and will of god denying yourself means not being like the devil denying yourself means like in this case especially not being like peter but jesus goes on he says take up your cross anybody if you want to come after me not interested in your clamor, not interested in your applause, interested in a life that will mirror mine. And that is taking up his cross. Jesus was going to the cross. We know that from this point onwards, he will mention this and remind his disciples again that I'm going to the cross. I'm going to fulfill my objective by death on the cross. And of course, the disciples are very conflicted about it throughout this part of the gospel. But Jesus also says to the crowd, do you want to follow me? Put to death your imposition. Put to death your right to authority. Put to death your aspirations that are not fueled by God's plans. Take up the cross. Die in that sense. Die to yourself. Stop thinking that you are in charge. Learn to sacrifice as Christ would sacrifice And he says, then you follow me. That's what it means to follow. To follow Jesus, not just in terms of all those principles and virtues of obedience, but in a very real way to sacrifice yourself for the sake of this world. Now that is something that the church needs to be reminded of. Not that we delight in suffering, but that we recognize that if we are truly yielded to the plan of God in telling the truth of the gospel, in showing the truth of the gospel, in demonstrating it uncompromisingly, it will entail suffering. Why? People ask why. Well, because we know that the world does not like this concept, this message of God as king. The world says, no, we are our own gods. We are in control. It will be inevitable, brothers and sisters in Christ, that when we choose to speak the truth, even in love, obviously it has to be in love, but when the truth is not compromised in the eyes of a fallen world, it will not only be rejected, it will lead to aggression. And the church, therefore, back then, today, as we know the Gospel of Mark was probably written at the time when the church was experiencing persecution under the Roman Empire. But this was probably written for them too, to, be, to remind them that this is part and parcel of being a Christian, you know. It is part and parcel of following Jesus. We know sadly that this doesn't get taught enough in the church. We are all interested in the blessings that God will hand out. But we don't recognize that He's calling us to follow in the way of his son, Jesus. That when we truly are faithful in sharing the truth and even demonstrating it, it will lead to aggression from those who do not want it. And that's why Jesus says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. It is, it is a, a paradox of truth that in the event your life is at stake, Jesus is saying you are still in the way of Christ and believe him, it will lead ultimately to fullness of life in eternity. And we're not just talking about a spiritual, ethereal reality, we're talking about a physical reality of eternal life. Jesus says, whoever loses his life for his sake and the Gospels will save it. He goes on to explain, in verse 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Now, it's interesting here that in the English translation, uh, the word life and soul are actually differentiated. But in the Greek, it is the same word that's being used for the word life and soul. And that is psyche uh, or psyche. And it actually means your inner being, your very core of existence, body, mind, and spirit, who you are. And Jesus is saying that even if you lose your physical life, if you do it for the sake of the gospel and for Christ, you will save it. And that's why we talk about that physical resurrection. That's why we talk about uh, uh, our, our uh, saved state as children of God who have been pardoned of our sins. It is a total salvation of the body, the mind, and the spirit. And Jesus uses this in contrast to the world, the material wealth of the world, the material uh, understanding of what is valuable, that is fleeting, however, aspirations that will not last, status, things like prosperity that is devoid of God. Jesus says, what's the point? If you gain the whole world but you forfeit your very being, who you are as created in the image of God. He goes on to say, what can a man give in return for his soul, actually? You can't buy it back if you have been so dehumanized, if you have rejected the gospel, if you have sold your soul in that sense. As you reject the gospel, you cannot buy it back. And this is where Jesus makes it very clear to those who are listening, but perhaps particularly to Peter, who sought to get in the way. Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's reflect for a moment. Would this message that Jesus gave be attractive to the world that we live in today? It certainly wasn't for Peter's day, at least for those who were highly nationalistic Jews, yeah? because this was totally not what they signed up for when they, when they imagined the Messiah. For them, it would be the all-conquering political military king, not someone who was going to die for the sins of the world, not someone who's going to deal with uh, something that has uh, eternal consequences and we only see its culmination when you come back again when we don't know when. Similarly, maybe even the church today, what do we say to people when we say, come to Christ? Do we try to pander to what we think they would like to hear? Or do we tell them as we are also cognizant that God will call those he has chosen? And all we are to do as the church is to be faithful and loving in giving the uncompromising message of the gospel, that when christ calls us christ calls us to die to our sinful selves but to live anew and eternally in him not in just a spiritual sense a complete sense that every part of your waking hour all of your dreams and aspirations every word you speak everything you do is yielded the key word here Is yielded like how Christ was obedient to the plan of God the Father for his Christ in the way of the cross with the hope and reality of the resurrection. Does the church say that to the world? Or do we sometimes hear things like, yeah, believe in Jesus, you know, you'll find happiness, you know, you'll find inner peace or believe in Jesus, suddenly you will see miracles taking place, you know. And we're not saying that God doesn't do that, but we're saying that the call to follow Christ isn't so that you get goodie backs. It's not about getting goodie backs. It's not about getting spiritual hampers. It is about truly understanding that in the context of this fallen world, a world that rejects God, that rejects the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that suffering is inevitable for those who want to bring forth that message? Not, not one of that the engineer of their own, but as the steward of this message, as Jesus Christ exemplified that message. That to truly live, you must die to yourself. And you must yield to Christ. Peter sought to get in the way. Have we been guilty of that in our own way, in our own equivalent? And we're not willing to emphasize why Jesus died on the cross. And we don't want to talk about how it was necessary. It says there, isn't it, in verse 31, that the Son of Man must suffer not only to take away of the sins of the world but to expose the sin of this world. That is because of sinful humanity, those who were supposed to be bearers of light and truth, they are the ones that conspired to kill the author of life. It is an indictment and judgment on sinful humanity represented by these fallen leaders of first century Judaism. The church, whether as small groups or as families or individuals or as the universal church, needs to be firm in this message, not only during the season of Lent, but it's particularly helpful to review this. Has our public witness been Just that of telling people, yeah, 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 God is your good friend, your shoulder to to cry on. Yeah, yeah, when you believe in Jesus, you get all these spiritual hampers or goodie bags. No. It means a radical change, a death to a life of sin, and a resurrection to a life transformed by the Holy Spirit in the way of the cross, with the hope of the resurrection, with the presence of the indwelling divine, The triune God through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus warns those who are ashamed if if the church is ashamed of this message and doesn't want to follow through on this faithful message and instead seeks to water it down or worse still, totally pervert it to something that is alike to consumeristic religion, we will be judged. Because on the day of Christ, when He returns, when He comes in glory, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels, he will hold the church to account. So for us as the collective church, the body of Christ, this is something we need to think about. What are we telling people outside in our services, in our public engagement? What are we telling people about Jesus? Is it faithful to the mission of the Christ? For us as individuals, likewise, telling what have you been telling yourself? Is Jesus just Santa Claus for the rest of the year? As long as you say, in Jesus' name, amen, he's got to do it. Or is following Jesus about dying to yourself, yielding to the plan of God in sacrifice and in trust? It may mean going to someone to share the gospel that you are afraid to talk to, someone who you don't like, it may mean showing love to someone who you, you cannot stand the thought of receiving any benefit from you. It may mean even sacrificing not only out of the convenience, but perhaps even your livelihood so that they may experience the love and truth of God through the elected church. Let us pray. Father, whenever we read your word, And if we take it seriously, we recognize, oh God, that we can too be overwhelmed like Peter because it did not meet our expectation. In fact, it probably goes against our expectation to maintain the status quo in our life. But you, oh God, wrote your word through the centuries of existence of humanity, not just to affirm us, but to jolt us into obedience and to remind us... As a church, we cannot be complacent. As a church, we are called to walk in the way of the Christ, in Jesus, the Son of Man, whether in our own privacy, personally, or even as a family, or even as the church. Help us, therefore, to discern how to do so faithfully, that it all starts by truly knowing your word, what the gospel is, and then it is shown in faithfulness with your help, but without fear fear, and without hijacking of our personal preferences into the gospel and ministry. Forgive us if we have been guilty of that one way or another. We ask for your forgiveness, but we also ask, O oh God, that you renew us as we confess our sins, so that we may serve you in fullness of life to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.